The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, November 27th, 2023. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. In tonight's news. Construction of the Madison Public Market officially kicked off this morning. A spokesperson for the Madison Public Library discusses legislation that would require librarians to notify parents what their children are reading. And in the second half, protesters gather near UW-Madison to support Palestine. The government's calendar gets a closer look. A 40-year-old internal memo exposes a fossil fuel company. And a controversial film analyzes JFK's assassination. This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Brad Schimmel, a former attorney general, is planning on running for Wisconsin Supreme Court in 2025, according to a source knowledgeable about the campaign. Schimmel, a conservative, would be running against Justice Ann Walsh Bradley in an attempt to regain conservative control of the court. Bradley is currently the longest-serving member of the court and won re-election in 2015 by a 16-point margin. As Wisconsin Attorney General, Schimmel defended the state's voter ID law and the state's legislative maps and challenged the legality of the, the Affordable Care Act. Governor Evers defended his practice of using an alternative email account to communicate with state workers, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Over the weekend, a conservative media outlet accused the governor of possibly avoiding open records requests by using an alias email account using the name of a, his, of a historical baseball player. The Evers administration called the practice commonplace, saying that having an email for the governor that was not easily available to the public was necessary to avoid being overwhelmed by spam and phishing attempts. The administration also pointed out that the use of alias emails was widespread, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that former Governor Scott Walker also used an alias email. The administration said that the use of the alias email in no way inhibited public record requests and that the email was still subject to the Wisconsin Open Records Law. Governor Evers announced 82 more pardons last week, raising his total pardons count to over 1,100. Evers has pardoned more people than any other Wisconsin governor. This round of pardons focused on people who had possessed or sold controlled substances, reports the Wisconsin State Journal, with about a third going to people convicted of selling or possessing marijuana. To be eligible for a pardon, Wisconsinites need to have had five years elapsed since serving their sentence, and they cannot have any pending criminal charges. A new study co-authored by a University of Wisconsin-Madison sociology professor found that COVID-19 caused a significant uptick in premature births, according to a press release from the university. Using data from California birth records, the study found that the risk of preterm births increased by 5.4 percentage points if the mother was infected by COVID. The level of increase is on par with what you'd see in factors like prolonged exposure to smoke inhalation. However, by 2023, maternal COVID infection had no measurable effect on premature births, which the study attributes to widespread vaccinations. The author of the study cited these results as evidence that pregnant women getting the vaccine actually increased the health of the fetus. The Wisconsin-based convenience store Quick Trip announced that all new locations will have two self-checkout stations, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Quick Trip claims this does not change their staffing levels for the stores and will only affect customer convenience. 
The company says it has currently no plans for adding self-checkout kiosks to existing stores. Madison's bus rapid transit project is set to cost the city around $50 million, reports the Capital Times. The total project cost is approximately $194 million, covering the expenses of building the new lanes and dedicated boarding stations. The majority of that money will be provided by grants from the federal government, including money from the bipartisan infrastructure law. The majority of the city's portion of the funding will come from municipal borrowing that will cut into the city's budget for future years. The first bus rapid transit route is set to open in fall of 2024. The Madison nonprofit Music Combrio has announced that its future is in jeopardy. That's after the Madison Metro School District decided to require the organization to pay its facility's rental fee, reports the Capital Times. The nonprofit, which teaches music to elementary school students, charges a sliding scale for enrollment. And as a result, the district says the organization is not eligible for its lowest tier of rental rates. Now, the organization would need to pay a rental fee of $15,000, an amount they say they will probably be unable to afford and stay operational. The district cited liability concerns in a statement explaining its decision. And now on to today's top stories. After several years of delays, the Madison public market has officially started construction. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. This morning, city officials, members of the Madison Public Markets Foundation, and stakeholders invited the press to a groundbreaking ceremony at the market's North First Street location. Now that construction is officially underway and they have the necessary funding, the public market is set to open its doors in the spring of 2025, just blocks from the Yahara River. James Shulkin is on the Foundation's Board of Directors. We're really looking forward to making the Madison Public Market a really fantastic place to come for meals and for shopping and for everybody to come and enjoy what we think will be a fantastic representation of all the wonderful things that exist here in Madison and Dane County in terms of culture and arts and entertainment and and great food to eat. In September, Joe Daniels Construction submitted the lowest construction bid at just about $16 million. But even with the city selecting that lowest bid, the project was still over budget at a $23 million total. That's almost $9 million more than the budget that was approved eight years ago. To cover that shortfall, the Common Council approved an additional $1.6 million of city funding last month, and the County Board approved an additional $1 million. True Stage, the rebranded CUNA Mutual Group, also supplied a significant amount of funding. According to Shulkin, the Insurance and Investment Services Company donated $1.5 million to the project, giving them the naming rights for what will be called the True Stage Market Ready Hall. And that is the Food Entrepreneur Center that is a part of the public market. So approximately one half of the building is actually a space where new businesses in the food industry can create all the production and use the equipment they need to manufacture and process food and then also package and distribute the food. That comes as employees at True Stage continue to fight for a new contract, their last one having expired in March of 2022. They're demanding better pay, health care, and pensions, as well as opportunities to work remotely. According to Shulkin, the market's budget cannot be modified once the city and its contractors have agreed on a bid. He also says that more than 200 local businesses have expressed interest in establishing storefronts there when the construction is finished. But the city is in the early stages of the selection process. A 
few years ago, the city of Madison organized this program, and that was to help women and minorities and uh, first-generation immigrants start new food businesses or new businesses in general. Later on, the city chose five vendors to actually be in the market and is going to give them some funding to get started in the market. But those are the only vendors that have been selected. Little Tibet was one of the five finalists in that initiative. Namgyal Pansar is one of Little Tibet's owners. She says they're waiting on more information about what their facilities will look like. They said it's going to be the destination place for Madison. So, you know, there will be more people, more customers, bigger sale opportunity for us. I don't know, I'm just kind of very happy about it. You know, at some point I thought, you know, it's not going to come to, you know, there were a lot of obstacles, but now it's happening. So very excited, very, very excited for it. Depending on space, they hope to include many of the favorites on their menu. But their dumplings, she says, are a certainty. Dumplings going to be 100% sure, yeah. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. time right now is 6.15 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this month, state Republicans introduced a bill that would require Wisconsin librarians to send parents notifications of their children's checkout history. But if passed, what exactly would this legislation change? Tana Elias is the Digital Services and Marketing Manager for the Madison Public Library, and earlier this afternoon, she shared her perspective on the bill with WORT News producer Faye Parks. Thank you for joining me, Tana. Thank you. So, to start, listeners may or may not know that librarians are some of the most staunch defenders of privacy law, and that ties in with the five rules of library science. Can you tell us more about those values? Yeah. At public libraries, we believe that everybody has the right to read or, you know, be exposed to a variety of viewpoints. We have a collection that has a wide variety of viewpoints. And we also believe that it's important to maintain the privacy of individual use of materials of the library. So we follow Wisconsin State Statute 4330 in maintaining privacy and making sure that we're not sharing information about what people are using the library for, what they're reading. Um, what they're viewing on computers, et cetera, unless they need a variety of information standpoints. You know, if we have a subpoena, for example, we'll release that information. So if, for example, the FBI or some other law enforcement agency wanted to get that information without the proper subpoena, you would fight that? Yes, we'd work with the city attorney's office to make sure that they had all the proper authorization to make that request before we give records out. Earlier this month, state Republicans introduced legislation that would require Wisconsin librarians to notify parents what materials that their children under the age of 16 check out. What are the current policies? 
So right now the onus is on the parent, not the library. In Madison, and keep in mind, every public library has the ability to set their own procedures in terms of cards as long as they meet those state statute requirements. So in Madison, a child under 16 needs a parent's approval to obtain a library card with a few exceptions. So the parent is already involved in that process, and the parent can check a child's record online or in person with staff at any time if they have the child's card. In addition, the parent can fill out a parental request for minors circulation records request if they don't have the card and have custody of the child. So we are following all of the state statute guidelines, but then protecting the privacy as as much as we can of children using the library. But there are lots of things. This is already possible for parents to find out what their child is checking out. They just need to do the action. The interesting thing about this bill and the reason that it is difficult for libraries should it go forward is that it puts the work on the library and our computer software currently isn't set up to do that. So again, just speaking for Madison, we don't have a system in place currently, and we don't have, in some cases, all of the information that we would need to send updates within 24 hours every time a child checks something out. Right now, you know, you don't get an email every time you check something out. You have the ability to log into your record and look at it online. So again, parents can do that now, but the work is on them rather than the public library. Yeah, and that's what's really interesting about this is that there is already technically a notification system. It's simply that you check your account. So what you're saying is that it would require essentially an overhaul of all of these libraries' websites to make that happen? Right. Again, I can only speak for ours. You know, Madison Public Library is part of a 50-plus consortium of public libraries called the South Central Library System, and the majority of those libraries use shared software. And so that has all the patron records. It also has all the checkout records. And currently, we don't have the ability to do that. So we don't have the ability to automatically send an email every time a child's card is used to check something out. So that would be, you know, programming that we would need to do in order to make that happen, to meet that request, should that be approved. So again, speaking just for a South Central Library System, other libraries may have different software and may have that ability, but currently we don't. If this went forward until we would be able to update our computer system, this would be a manual thing. And, you know, we check out thousands of items a day. So this would be a huge thing, really, an obligation for staff to be able to do that. And in some cases, we don't have necessarily the parents' email information. So we would have to email or we would have to make calls. The text of the assembly bill mentions something about requiring libraries to have clear postings throughout the facilities that would state that this notification system is available. Can you speak to that at all? What is your perspective on that? Yeah, they say in a prominent place in the library, that would be easy enough to do. And on the library's website, that gets a little more complicated because it's the library's website, the individual library's website. For example, we have madisonpubliclibrary.org, and that has information about our policies and programs and so on. That would be relatively easy to do. But if the library's website means the shared catalog website, that would be more difficult because, again, each library has the ability to set their own policy. And, you know, we would have to have 50 plus different policies listed on linkcat.info, which is our shared catalog. So again, if the entire library system agreed on a policy, that would be easier to share. I guess my point is it would be kind of complicated in that shared catalog environment to make sure that people are able to access this information, not to say that it can't be done. It would just take some coordination. 
So it's interesting because this isn't necessarily a concern of privacy because parents technically do already have access to this information as long as they have their child's library card. It sounds like this is more just, in your case, not workable with the system that you currently have and maybe even redundant. Do you agree with that? I do feel for the most part it's redundant because the majority of parents would be able to check their child's library card at any point. And the majority of parents have the ability to choose whether their child under 16 has a library card or not. Madison, for example, has a few exceptions that constitute about 1.3% of total cards, and that is limited ability to check out for children whose parents don't give permission. And typically, that permission is not given because the parents are worried about the items being lost. And in that case, the child has access only to three items at a time. Have you heard from Madison librarians at all? Do they have concerns about this proposed legislation? You know, I think the majority of our staff uphold the idea that libraries are for everyone and that children should be able to check things out freely and read freely. We do have a policy in place. I'm pretty sure that if this change went forward and library staff had to email every parent every time a child checks something out, they would see that as a burden based on the workload and the number of items that we check out on a daily basis. And so this comes as states across the country are targeting books with LGBTQ plus themes. In related news, WPR reports that there's a separate proposal in the state legislature that would lift librarians' protection from prosecution for quote-unquote obscene materials. What are the wider implications for Wisconsin libraries if these proposals were all to pass? I mean, the second one that you indicated has a real chilling effect on the job of a librarian. You know, when you read about school librarians or public librarians in other states who have been fired or received threats or are worried about their jobs because of this, it's difficult. It's a hard situation to be in for our staff. It means that our staff will be much more aware of what, you know, what they're checking out on a regular basis, it really makes a difference in terms of our ability to provide service to customers. You know, we end up censoring ourselves and censoring our own behavior and maybe not choosing books that might get our staff fired, for example. So that's what we see at the national level. We know that this kind of legislation has a chilling effect on the profession, which really, you know, has a really negative effect on the consumers, on the people who want materials that again, reflect a wide variety of viewpoints and might be different than what the proponents of this legislation kind of endorse. And that was something that we discussed at the top of this interview, the idea that librarians really don't believe in any kind of censorship, either of themselves or of their readers. So there's the principle for every book, its reader, the idea that people should have open access to whatever they want without judgment. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah. You know, we really believe both at Madison Public Library and I think the profession as a whole believe that it's the parent's job to regulate a child's use of the library, to monitor what they're reading, to monitor what they're doing on their computer, if that's something that they choose to do. Children can't come into our library under the age of seven without a parent or guardian. So really, parents should be, this is a parent's job to make sure that their child is reading something that they believe is appropriate. And if they don't believe it's appropriate, they have the choice not to check it out. They have the choice to return it. They have the choice not to visit a program, whatever. 
we cannot be, the staff of the library cannot be that child's parent. And we really feel that we make wide accessible collection available to families and families are going to self-select material that's right for their family. And so, you know, with all of these changes to the system as it stands, I'd imagine it would cost a fair amount of money. Can you speak to the state of funding for Madison libraries? Would this be a significant burden? Well, I think if this is passed at the state level, I would hope that the state would provide the additional funding to make this happen. You know, we are 86% city funding, and so this would have a system-wide, library system-wide impacts. And we would hope that if it's a policy that goes forward as law, that there would be funding available to make this change happen because it would be a significant financial impact. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I I will say, this is my personal opinion, this kind of legislation is political when you think about the ability of a child to come into a library and check material out. There's no way to protect children from seeing those books, from reading those books in the library. And by those books, I mean, in particular, I think this legislation does not specifically say that there are LGBTQ materials that people are upset about. But I think that is the basis for this legislation. We can see that nationwide. We believe that books don't cause behavior. Books are ideas. And, you know, you read a variety of ideas in your lifetime. And we believe that it's really important that children have access to a wide variety of ideas, that children have access to books and materials that reflect their own realities and learn about the realities of other people's, other families, etc. So I do feel like this is definitely a political move. And libraries are really in the crosshairs of that. And this would have significant financial and staffing implications for us if these bills go forward. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Tana. Thank you. That was Tana Elias, the Digital Services and Marketing Manager for the Madison Public Library. She says this latest legislation from the state GOP is politically motivated. This proposed change to the system would require Madison libraries to overhaul their websites and establish email notifications, a service they don't currently offer. And they may not have the necessary funding to make this happen. Your time right now is 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Last week, demonstrators supporting Palestine greeted commuters on their way to downtown Madison. WORT news reporter Greg Gabowski has the story. Down, with Those were sounds from last Wednesday morning, where protesters carrying signs with sayings such as, it is not a conflict, it is genocide, gathered on Johnson Street at Charter near the UW campus in support of Palestinians. A four-day ceasefire in Gaza that started on Friday has brought a brief respite in hostilities there, but the Israeli government has so far indicated that the largest army in the Middle East plans to continue its assault on the strip of land whose area is less than combined areas of Madison and Milwaukee, an attack which has already left over 13,000 Gazans dead and over 1.7 million people, or 80% of its population, displaced or homeless. Wednesday's Madison protest started at 6.30 a.m. and grew through the morning, and then for at least an hour, ending at 10 a.m., Johnson Street was reduced to one lane, with protesters blocking the street, according to social media posts verified by 6 o'clock news. 
Earlier in the morning, before the street action, 6 o'clock news had spoken to Angel Banuelos, who was part of an early cohort of protesters as they gathered on Johnson Street. We're out here advocating for a free Palestine. We mean lift the siege on Gaza and give the land back. We have been every day seeing thousands of people getting bombed, disfigured, starving, with no water, hospitals getting bombed, and then dealing with the fact that our society chooses not to speak up, even though we are funding this genocide. So that's been honestly one of the most horrific experiences in my life to see that they can bomb a hospital and nobody will say anything. So that's why today we are out here protesting again for the Palestinian people. And do you have any um, personal connection that makes you come out and support the, the Palestinian cause? Sure, yeah. Well, one of them being that I'm a U.S. citizen and my taxes are paying for their genocide and for their oppression. The second one being that they trained U.S. cops in Israel and my family has been abused by the police on many occasions. Um, do, do you feel any uh, you know, connection between what the Palestinians are going through and, and indigenous people in, um, uh, in, the, um, in the Americas? Do you, do you see any connection? Oh, absolutely. I, I actually did a presentation the other day. A lot of the Native Americans that I've seen, there's been solidarity since the 70s because it's the same process of stealing the land, ethnically cleansing the land, and basically taking control of all the resources and telling the people that were already there that they can't have it. There was Angel Benuelos, who participated in Wednesday's protests in support of Palestinians held on Johnson Street at Charter by the UW campus in Madison. The later civil disobedience action, which slowed down eastbound traffic on this main direct route through the UW campus into the state capital, was meant as a mild simulation of the system of Israeli checkpoints, according to a participant in this action, interviewed later by WRT and who asked to remain unnamed. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jabowski. It's Monday. Do you know what your elected officials are up to? On this edition of Forward Lookout, Dylan Brogan and Brenda Conkle discuss what's on the agenda of local governments in the coming week. With me now is Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. Hey, Brenda. Hey, Dylan. How's it going? Just fine. We'll start with Dane County. Let's just go right to Tuesday. 5.30, the Equal Opportunities Commission is having a hybrid meeting. Looks like they're going to be looking at the equity plan for the Dane County Medical Examiner's Office. Um, I know they're supposed to review these equity plans throughout. I don't know if there's something special about this one, but that's what's on their agenda. They're also looking at their, their slideshow that they have that teaches people about the Equal Opportunities Commission, and then they'll get a bunch of reports from staff and others. Um, they will also, within those reports, get an update on the Henry Baez Zoo workplace plan. Another meeting Tuesday at 5.30 is a joint meeting of the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee and the Public Works and Transportation Committee. And they are dealing with the ongoing issue with the Dane County Jail, which is, uh, you know, they're trying to build that new tower to shut down the city-county building jail that is very old and decrepit. But they just can't get the numbers right. They can't. It's just more expensive every time they try, and then they are, they're back to, you know, this awkward thing where they have to have a big vote, right? And yeah, not off by a little bit, but by millions and millions of dollars. So it's 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 having huge implications. And you know, I know that uh, construction costs are up and all kinds of things, but this these missteps are starting to get a little ridiculous. Well, they'll see what they can do, I guess, at this meeting. Uh, if yeah. you're interested in the subject, uh, definitely Tuesday is a good chance to hear what the latest is. I mean, man, we got a lot of meetings uh, on Tuesday for the county. Why don't we just skip down to the 
What do you say? The Zoning and Land Regulation Committee? What are they up to? So they um, have a bunch of their sort of routine items. One of the bigger projects may be the one that's, um, they have a conditional use permit, which is a little bit additional uh, approvals that they have to do. And that's 1993 State Highway 92. Um, they're also going to be looking at the 2024 operating budget to allocate funding for broadband expansion. And then they are updating some of their comprehensive plan again. Um, and then after that, they'll be also having a subcommittee meeting of the Cultural Resource Planning Subcommittee. They may have a quorum of the, the uh, Zoning and Regulation Committee. And then on Wednesday, we have the Specialized Transportation Commission. And that is meeting at, I believe, the Aging and Disabilities Resource Center of Dane County. What's on their agenda? Um, they'll be getting a presentation from the Colonial Club Senior Activity Center. And then they are also going to be looking at approving a, applica- a grant application for um, transportation assistance for elderly and disabled folks. All right, a lot to get to with the city of Madison. So let's go there. And at 4.30 happening, uh, probably wrapping up, but maybe not because it's the longest agenda you've seen a lot in a while. The Finance <laughs> Committee has 52 agenda items. So what is causing all these agenda items for the Finance Committee? I think there's two things going on. During budget, they're all focused on the budget, and then they have a lot of last-minute, end-of-the-year things they got to get done. So, um, yeah, there's it's quite a long agenda. Um, there's 12 personnel items. There's a bunch of affordable housing projects um, that are being funded, and then they also have lots of contracts and amendments. Uh, they have their end-of-the-year um they do a finalization where they reappropriate money at the end of the year, so they'll be doing that. They also have um, Michelle Drea is being confirmed for another five years as a city assessor. And then they are also going to be going into closed session and talk about uh, refinancing um, a loan for 25 West Main, which is urban land interest uh, parking ramp over there by the city county building. All right. If you want to see the full agenda, just head on over to forwardlookout.com. We also have a meeting of the Plan Commission that got underway at 5.30 today. Lots of projects on their docket. They do. They also have quite a lengthy agenda for this time of year. They are going to be uh, looking at the transportation demand management procedures, and they're going to be broadening who that applies to. And then they have several projects, one on High Point Road and South Junction Road, uh, one out on Portage Road, Chandler Street, as well as a big project out on the triangle. So they're looking at um, changing the zoning there for some of the redevelopment that they have coming up, as well as they have some projects um, mostly out on the periphery of the city of Madison. They will be also looking at uh, Pumpkin Hollow Platte out there, um, which is a bigger subdivision out on the periphery. And then they will also be looking at new house out on Lake Mendota Drive. All right. Lots to dive in there, too. Um, all right. Where should we go to next? How about the Water Utility Board, which meets at 430 on Tuesday? So they have their bunch of reports. That they have a lot of written reports that they have. So if you're interested in that, you can always check up on. Um, they almost always have their financial conditions monthly report and an operations monthly report. And then they're also going to be looking at, well, 15, looking at a PFAS treatment facility contracts for that. And we have some new construction design projects that are being looked at at the Urban Design Commission. And that's at 4.30 on Wednesday. Lots and lots of development going on. There's a big uh, student housing building that's going to be built on North Broome, West Johnson, and West Gorham. They also have a project at 531 West Mifflin, as well as 2230 Pennsylvania Avenue, 
um, which is out by all those Hooper properties. Also on Wednesday at 5 o'clock, we have the Transportation Commission. A lot going on with transportation in this town. <laughs> they do. They have a lot going on. Um, they also apparently are approving lighting. Looks like the city has a plan to retrofit some of the inefficient street lights and, and change them to LEDs. So that'll be in front of them. And then there's a couple grants and they are looking at some funding programs for um, 2024 to 2028. They're getting an update on Metro Transit ridership, as well as um, looking at those transportation demand management procedures. Well, nothing attached to that agenda, but it'd be interesting to see the ridership update, uh, given all the changes. And mayor's probably crossing her fingers. It's gone up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. So five o'clock on Wednesday, we have the Vending Oversight Committee. So for food carts, pretty important meeting happening. Yep, they'll be approving their 2024-2025 uh, vending map as well as looking at late night vending and some of the planning around that. Finally, a very early morning meeting on Thursday. It's a, a notice of a possible quorum of the Housing Strategy Committee at 745 at the Madison Municipal Building because they're looking at rental housing. I'm sure there'll be lots of interest in that. Um, this is actually a notice of quorum that the Housing Strategy Committee may be present, but there was not an agenda for it. Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. If you want to see more agenda items and meeting times, just head on over to ForwardLookout.com. Brenda, thank you for taking the time to walking us through this week in local government. No problem. It's now 6.44 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Thirty-eight years ago tomorrow, Shell Oil circulated an internal memo showing they knew that fossil fuels were causing climate change. Researchers later discovered that Shell, along with ExxonMobil, knew the consequences of using fossil fuels as early as the 70s. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time, for our brothers and our sisters up and down that picket line, for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long, for the union men and women standing up and standing strong. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the day in 1985 when Shell Oil Company circulated an internal memo showing that Shell already knew that burning fossil fuels was causing climate change and that it would have disastrous effects for humanity. Shell knew this as early as 1981, according to that memo. Despite this, Shell has fought any government attempts to limit CO2 emissions for decades to this very day. In fact, Shell understood global warming even earlier, according to a report called Dirty Pro 
pearls, exposing Shell's hidden legacy of climate change accountability, 1970 to 1990, by researcher Vaden Hooser, a Ph.D. candidate at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Investigative journalists on the website Followed Money have released records showing that Shell began studying climate change in the 60s. The company not only kept well abreast of climate science, but also funded research. As a result, by the 70s, Shell already knew that burning fossil fuels could lead to alarming climate change. This follows earlier explosive revelations that ExxonMobil knew fossil fuels were driving global climate change since the 70s. An article in Science Magazine says that ExxonMobil funded computer models that forecast the coming warming as well or better than government and academic scientists by the late 70s. Faced with a global climate crisis in the early 70s, Shell did not sound the alarm nor shift to cleaner practices, but instead doubled down on fossil fuels, launching a coal mining operation in 1974. But Shell's own research studies in 1975 and 1978 continued to show how wrong this was, that continued fossil fuel burning would increase CO2, producing major climate change. In 1989, a confidential study by Shell stated that if the global temperature rises more than 1.5 degrees centigrade, the potential refugee problem could be unprecedented. Africans would push into Europe, Chinese into the Soviet Union, Latins into the United States, Indonesians into Australia. Boundaries would count for little. Overwhelmed by the numbers, conflicts would abound. Civilization could prove a fragile thing. The 1.5 degree rise was the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement goal. According to Duncan Meisel, executive director of the advocacy group Clean Creatives, in the 80s, Shell scientists laid out two pathways for the planet, one where energy companies undertook a smooth transition to clean energy, and one where fossil fuel demand continued to rise, creating more storms, more droughts, more deluges. He continued, since the publication of that forecast, Shell has pushed at every turn to create more fossil fuel demand, creating the devastating outcomes they predicted. Shell was even promoting climate denialism to the general public. The Center for Climate Integrity, CCI, said the records provide more damning evidence that Shell Oil knew its business model was having disastrous impacts on the world and its people. As CCI put it, they knew, they lied, they need to pay. The Dirty Pearl study may be used in the climate-related litigation against Shell. Ben Franta, senior research fellow in climate litigation at the University of Oxford, says, despite internal awareness, the company systematically downplayed the problem to the public, instead promoting more and more fossil fuel use despite the dangers. Now, five decades later, Shell continues to dawdle and delay. University of Miami professor Jeffrey Supran known for his research into ExxonMobil, says, of Shell Oil. This report winds back the clock even further on Shell's long history of climate knowledge and deception. Shell is making record profits and does not plan to alter its focus on fossil fuels. Shell's oil and gas extraction spending is more than double what it spends on renewables. Last year and this year, Shell also funds what many climate groups call false solutions. As Mizell of Clean Creative said, Shell is still pursuing the exact scenario that they knew would cause global disaster. However, Shell is 
was under a Dutch court order to cut emissions 45 percent by 2030 compared to 2019 levels. After this court order came down in 2021, Shell Oil announced plans to move its tax residents from the Netherlands to England and later repealed the Dutch court order. In the meantime, Shell is theoretically obligated to carry out the court ruling. And that is our story for today. For the past and the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Just when you thought the coverage of President Kennedy's assassination was over, self-proclaimed boomer Harry Richardson reviews JFK, Oliver Stone's controversial movie on the historic murder. Y'all gotta get into your minds how the hell the spooks think. Now they're not ordinary crooks. Think the unthinkable. Question everything. Now we're through the looking glass here, people. That was a clip from the trailer for JFK by Oliver Stone. I rewatched the movie a couple of weeks ago as part of the UW Cinematheque series in the shadow of the JFK assassination. I first saw it when it came out in 1991, and JFK has lost none of its power and is still as controversial. JFK is based on the book by Jim Garrison, On the Trail of the Assassins, and Jim Marr's book Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy. The movie is largely told through the eyes of Jim Garrison in one of Kevin Costner's finest roles as a New Orleans district attorney who becomes obsessed with the JFK assassination. The movie starts with a dramatic montage begun by President Eisenhower, former World War II hero, on television warning the American people of the threat of the military-industrial complex. Then we see various clips of Kennedy, who has upset the establishment and thus found himself on the literal road to assassination. Between the movie's release and today, it has been critiqued and blown apart in almost every way imaginable. The movie works as a convincing story of what happened, how it happened, and even what may be most important, why. The film is aided by an A-list cast at the top of their game, led by Cosner. Garrison, like the rest of us, is horrified by that afternoon in Dallas, but he doesn't start to get involved in the case until three years later. Garrison starts reading the Warren Commission report. The commission was put together by then-President Lyndon Johnson to head off other investigations into the assassination. The commission's head was Chief Justice Earl Warren. Alan Dulles, although he had been recently fired as CIA director by Kennedy, was one of the leading commission members. Garrison feels the commission's work was shoddy and takes on the investigation himself. He drags up several shady locals who had dealings with Oswald. Oswald had spent time in New Orleans before going to Dallas, and thus Garrison had jurisdiction to take on the whole case. Garrison concludes that there are just too many bullets and too many different witnesses on where the shots came from for Oswald to acted alone. Garrison and an aide, both formerly in the military, air their suspicions of Oswald's participation from the school book depository window on the sixth floor. Their doubts begin with the alleged murder weapon, a bolt-action rifle that Oswald received through the mail. It was not really physically possible to get off three shots in the time available, and Oswald was only a mediocre shot, according to his military records. Also, why would you order a rifle through the mail when you could buy one locally? You could probably buy it without leaving a trace. Then, there was a series of unlikely events. Oswald learns Russian in the military, which led the two to believe he was in military and intelligence. Then Oswald defects to the Soviet Union, renouncing his citizenship, where he perhaps gives the Soviets enough info to help them shoot down a U-2 spy plane. He marries a Russian woman, and they have a child. Then he changes his mind, returns to the U.S. He has no trouble getting back in the country, and no trouble getting his wife and child out either. On his return, Oswald joins a pro-Castro group and infiltrates an anti- 
Castro group, eventually coming into contact with some unsavory New Orleans characters. From the school book depository window, there were two clear shots for the shooter before the motorcade makes the failed turn, but they weren't taken. Instead, the shooter waits until there is a partially obscured shot. Then there are the witnesses near the grassy knoll who ducked hearing shots from behind them. One eyewitness, a rail yard worker, reported seeing three men behind a fence on top of the knoll in an odd flash. A third location across the street from the grassy knoll was the Dow Tex building where shots were also reported to have been fired. Kennedy was shot where he was so the three different sites could triangulate their shots and almost guarantee killing Kennedy. The three men from the fence were later captured by police and called hobos, hitching a train out of town. They were questioned and released. Witnesses soon started dying off, some under mysterious circumstances. In one of the movie's most eerie scenes, Garrison goes off to D.C. to meet with a mysterious unnamed military CIA man, a great Donald Sutherland, who goes into a monologue explaining to Garrison the full depth and breadth of the conspiracy, implicating the military-industrial complex. The movie concludes with a great courtroom scene where Garrison brings the whole sordid story together. As for Stone, he is convinced that Kennedy was killed because of his changing foreign policy positions. He withdrew air support from the Bay of Pigs, fired CIA director Alan Dulles and two of his top aides, and threatened to tear the CIA into a thousand pieces. Stone notes Kennedy issued an executive order to withdraw a thousand troops from Vietnam and planned a total withdrawal by 1965. Kennedy made an eloquent speech calling for the end of the Cold War at American University. Stone felt Kennedy had been deeply affected and changed by the Cuban Missile Crisis, as evidenced by the Space Treaty and the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Kennedy made peace overtures to Castro, even as he pursued anti-Castro efforts like Operation Mangoose. Would Kennedy have followed through on this path? Sadly, we'll never know. But thanks to Stone's efforts, a trove of documents on the assassination were released in 2017. In 1992, less than a year after the movie's release, Congress passed the JFK Records Collection Act. Most of the records have been released, with more coming out under Biden, but some sensitive documents remain secret. Meanwhile, I would recommend a new podcast, Who Killed JFK, by director JFK conspiracy buff Rob Reiner and journalist Soldat O'Brien. Three of the ten weekly episodes have come out so far, and he pledges to name names. I hope to review this podcast when it is concluded. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show. Faye Parks produced the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Sam Swartz. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcasts. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.